folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today we have a fun episode. I'm super excited for this. Today we're going to be talking about Fermi's paradox. We're going to switch gears a little bit, get away from politics, and, uh, you know, lighten things up a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited. I like to talk about uh, space and exploration and, uh, and, and, and the implications on humanity and what it all means. This is yeah, good. absolutely, man. These are uh, once again those uh, those conversations that we had on the patio in our teenage years. This is just an extension of one of those. Um, and in fact, in that vein, we are joined today by a friend of the show. Uh, you've heard us reference him uh, in more than a few episodes, I think. But uh, Pedro, Pedro, our buddy, is here with us today. Pedro, say hey. Uh, hey guys, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks for having man. me. Uh, so Pedro, you are a astrophysicist at, uh, what university was that? Um, I believe you have me confused with someone else. I work maintenance at an apartment <laughs> complex. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but you do have a strong, deep abiding love for Star Trek, right? Uh, that I do. Uh, I'm and also a big fan of sci-fi and everything space. On, on this show, that's practically credentialed. So yeah, that'll work. As always, <laughs> Sense and Theory bringing in the hard-hitting, high-powered guests <laughs> for the big conversations, baby. <laughs> yeah, mostly I'm. Uh, I just really I have a passing interest in uh, alien life forms, and uh, <laughs> I just want. I really wanted to talk about it with your hundreds of fans. <laughs> oh dang! Uh, so let's jump right into it, huh? So the uh, Fermi's paradox. What is it? It's sometimes known as the Great Silence. Uh, but basically, it's a it's a question that is alleged to have spawned from a conversation between physicists at the Los Alamos National Laboratory back in 1950. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Los Alamos is where we were doing just the wildest of experiments back in the day. It's where a lot of the people who worked on the nuclear bomb ended up. So you've got people like Edward Teller and Enrico Fermi and all these you know brilliant minds. Uh, working there every day to find ways to bombard the Russians with cosmic rays and turn dogs into psychic beings and everything else. Basically the men who stare at goats, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it was. Yeah. So uh, uh, it turns out, you know, uh, Los Alamos being in New Mexico, uh, there were a lot of reports. There was this whole wave of UFO hysteria that kind of hit the country in the 1950s. And the whole Roswell thing yeah, started exploding. Roswell 1947 thing. or 48? Yeah, yeah. And so the way the story goes, the way Ed, uh, Edward Teller tells it, is that that morning, a group of physicists, including himself and Fermi, had been talking about the recent reports of UFO sightings. And they kind of went on about their day after you know talking about it initially. But then they sit down to lunch later in the day. And all of a sudden, just in the middle of lunch, Fermi blurts out, well, where are they? And he said every <laughs> physicist at the table bust out laughing because they knew exactly what he was talking about because they'd all been thinking it too. And so well, why was there even a conversation? They're right there. People are reporting them all <laughs> yeah, over the place. Yeah. What are you talking about, man? Well, what it, what it comes down to is that there are billions of stars in the galaxy that are similar to the sun. And many of these stars are billions of years older than the solar system. So with high probability we know that some of these stars should have Earth-like planets. And if the Earth is typical, some should have developed intelligent life. So the question becomes, like Fermi said, where are they? Like, if, if, if you look out at the vastness of space, you know, we always talk about all these galaxies that we see and stuff like that. So for the purpose of this paradox, we're, we're really going to focus on the Milky Way galaxy. But still, that is a, an enormous amount of stars. And you would right. think that by now... Somebody besides Earl in southern Alabama would have made first contact. Or sure, and, and there's plenty of stars we've identified in the Goldilocks zone, uh, which is the zone you know where where liquid water should be able to exist theoretically. Uh, and we're finding more and more of those planets as time goes on. Uh, so if liquid water is what you know life requires, and it's out there in abundance, um, and and life is as strong as as and as prolific as we like to think it is then it should be plopping up all over the place. And in this grand scale of time, in these billions of years, like you said, where, where the yeah. heck is it? Well, no, we've just recently, like, uh, using the, uh, the Kepler space probe, and I'm actually, we're going to link uh, in the show notes an excellent article that's going to explain all these numbers that I'm about to give you, like how exactly scientists arrived at those figures. Um, but basically, 
astronomers estimate that there are 10% of all stars are very much like our sun. Uh, the Milky Way contains 200 billion stars. Therefore, we can roughly expect that there are 20 billion sun-like stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. So when looking for things like the Goldilocks zone and so on and so forth, it basically, it, it comes down to a number that I think it's one in five uh, of those suns even have uh, planets that are in the Goldilocks zone. And again, the Goldilocks zone is basically a zone that we've used based off Earth to determine like where the best distance from the sun would be for life to develop. Right, and that's, that's a distance that's not cold enough, not far enough away and cold enough that all water is frozen. Right. Uh, it's not so hot that it all just, you know, and, and forms into steam. Uh, basically, the place where, where conditions are favorable for life as we know it to exist. Right. You don't want, uh, it's, you're not getting a certain amount of radiation from the sun as well. Mm. Um, and I think it has to do with gravitational pressure. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. Well, it also, and obviously that comes into play uh, when you start talking about tectonics and stuff like that. So it, it very much is like the, the old fairy tale, not too hot, not too cold, just right, you know, right in the middle. Um, one of the other things that we have to consider when we're looking at the size of the universe and everything is that it's not, or I'm sorry, the size of the galaxy is that while it is huge and it's hard for us to kind of comprehend sometimes, it's not an unconquerable distance. Right. Mm, it so sure seems so, like it. So to put that in perspective, we launched the Voyager probe back in 1977. Okay. And the Voyager probe, basically we just shot it out into space and we were like, go as far as you can. And we're going to see what's out. Yeah. We're going to take the signal until it disappears. Yeah. And, uh, it became the horrendous plot of the first Star Trek movie. Um, but other than that, it's been out there doing its thing and, uh, you know, sending us signals. And I actually just, uh, read, uh, I think last night, that uh, it is going to continue to transmit for eight more years. And then we're basically going to like lose contact with a little battery on it. It's going to go. But it is traveling at 17 kilometers per second. So Voyager, which we, like I for said. For those uh, of us in, in America, <laughs> that's uh, 30, I don't know, 36 miles per second I, I don't i don't do math i just read numbers off of paper 2.2 2 so. times 17 I, I don't do math either but uh maybe beans can correct us on that anyway it's pretty freaking fast <laughs> yeah no it's it's extremely it's fast. fast but voyager 1970s technology moving that fast would take only 450 million years to get to the center of the universe for someone who's bad at math, you sure got these numbers. Uh, I, I, I get the numbers. I get somebody else to do the math, and then I put them on this piece of paper. Right? Um, but As a matter <laughs> of fact, usually the math is already done for you. you yeah. just Google <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. It's, on, it's all over the internet. Um, but 450 million years, if you look, you know, we think our planet's 4.3 billion years old. That's really not that long. You know, I mean, think about it. our first probe could reach the center of the galaxy in 450 million it's, years. It's funny to me to hear someone say like billion years and not that long in the same sentence, considering like the scope of humanity, you know, life as we know it. Right. Uh, exists for nowhere near that long. <laughs> right. So now that that's the point that plays into the, the, the paradox beautifully. Right. So think about how many civilizations have had time to rise and reach the point where we are at. Mm. Now, where are their probes? Where are their, where's their space junk? Where are their signals? Where's their mm -hmm. debris? That is the heart of the paradox. Like it is, if you're looking at things on a long enough timeline, there has been plenty of time for something to accrue, some sign of life well, in and, this galaxy. And I think to be fair, and we'll get into some of the ideas for solutions and reasons for this, uh, this paradox's existence um, but I think there are signs. I think yeah. they're, they're out there. I think there are things, you know, cave drawings of UFOs and uh, repeating radio signals and things, you know. I, I think to discount all that evidence and just say, oh, we're, you know, oh, we're alone, there's nothing. Uh, we look back at the UFO sightings that, that these guys were originally sitting around talking about. Um, right. You know, not that I give them 100% credence, but uh, I don't think we necessarily don't have evidence 
of aliens uh, in our well, in our everyday life. I think the thing is, in the scientific community, a lot of time they want concrete evidence, <laughs> oh, and not, they? Yeah. and they and they don't want just like passing bad uh, cell phone video and bad VHS recordings. They yeah. want actual evidence. Is normally what they're talking about when they say evidence of. Um, I, I don't think ca- I, I don't think cave drawings, drawings in, is going to cut it. Basically, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Oh man, we the, the ancient astronauts guy. Like we can't just like put Aliens. him up there. Aliens, yeah. No, well, no. and I think even if we found even if we found evidence of of crafts, you know, for example, the Pentagon um, just recently released three videos from F A eighteen fighter pilots with the world's most advanced infrared radars uh, with absolutely unidentified flying objects that are you know in one case they're flying faster than the you know, maybe even five times faster than the the, the jets themselves uh, and you can hear these pilots who are well trained in identifying flying objects that's kind of their mm-hmm. job is to watch these sensors and see what's going on going like holy crap like how is it moving that fast you know yeah um so even if we even if we look at those videos and try to take them as as evidence of some alien life you can't do that because it could very well be uh, secret government projects. Oh they, yeah, absolutely. They could, you know, all these UFOs could absolutely be uh, human created. Yeah. Um. Just we don't understand I think, the origin of them. I think for you know definitely for the purpose of this conversation, but I think, um, at large, you you kind of have to imagine that whether or not they're going to, um, enslave us, or you know make peace with us, or tell us to stay out of their backyard. Or whatever is going to happen, that there is going to be a a, a more formal uh, contact, and that contact may have happened behind the scenes, you know. And who knows, you know, we could talk about that all day, you know. But I think until we are aware of it, we have to, you know, kind of go with uh, Fermi's question. Why, you know, why don't show us the probe then? Like, you know, if, if they're here, then let's see it. And until we're looking at it, you know, they're not here. We have you know to assume I mean? that they're not right. 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 I think that's fair. Um, I think one of the one of the interesting things uh, to kind of juice this conversation, kind of get it going, was back in the 1960s. Uh, there was a guy, uh, I think he was at SETI. Uh, his name was Frank Drake, and he came up with an equation that would study like the probabilities of there being other life in the universe. And, and it's really interesting, like what ends up happening with it is because this equation basically gives you what you thought kind of going in. Well, the idea is that uh, with uh, Drake's equation, um, basically it was the it was the first SETI um, conference, which SETI is the uh, Search for Extraterrestrial uh, Intelligence. Intelligence, yes. Um, and Drake wanted to come up with a way, and it wasn't this concrete like uh, equation. It wasn't hard science. He just wanted everyone at this first conference to be take it at least a little seriously so he came up with the idea that okay if we use even the lowest factors um for uh, like the lowest percentages for all these factors we should still have at least a thousand um just specifically in the milky way galaxy uh life more intelligent than us that should have been able to spread across the galaxy Uh, yeah given given the factors like uh how many planets exist in the goldilocks zone how yep. much time they've existed for how how prevalent we know life is to be on earth um and how and how uh, uh versatile it is in yeah. overcoming things like yeah uh so it makes a lot of sense to me and, he, and and you're saying he's even using the lower bounds of these numbers well yeah like in yeah in yeah he's in being general extremely generous in general but like uh, a large problem with it is that all right, optimists are obviously going to use the higher end of that percentage, and they're going to come out with something like we should have ten thousand species in our galaxy. But of course, pessimists are going to use the bottom rock bottom numbers, and they're going to be like, no, our our calculations say that we should have like it's close to zero percent chance of other life cropping up. And another issue with this uh, this equation is that we keep getting information. This equation was created back in the sixties. And we keep Mm -hmm. getting new information that changes what numbers you can plug into these equations. For instance, back in the 60s when he um, came up with this, we didn't know that most stars in the galaxy have planets. Basically, if there's a star, it has planets. We Mm. didn't know that. It it used to be assumed that it 
most stars didn't. So these numbers are a lot bigger or a lot more favorable to life now than they were even when Drake was was well, yeah well it can be but the issue is that other numbers change in the other direction so Ooh, yeah. it's a constantly fluctuating f- equation i right. think that's what makes drake so interesting is like i said like it's it's completely dependent on your best educated guess and so since our data is incomplete then it's it's very much so who you are going into it is the answer that you're going to get out. <laughs> but the beauty of it is as we continue to reach farther and continue to look and stuff, we're starting to get a more concrete answer for some of those numbers. And so the range I think will continue to shrink. And then one day I think Drake's equation will be extremely bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like right now it just gives you whatever you want. It it's going to be that point where we hit the edge of the galaxy and realize there is nothing but us. And we go, oh, wait, <laughs> here's the final piece of the equation. Look, guys. Oh, the equation 100%, works. 100%. There's yeah. nothing but us. Yeah, no, Drake was completely <laughs> right. You know? um, so basically there have been a lot of solutions and, and answers proposed to Fermi's paradox. Right, it's it's one of those. It's up here with like Schrodinger's cat, and know, that's it's... that's why I love Fermi's paradox so much. Is is because of the these answers? Because it's not really uh, because of the lack of data and and the lack of our own technological advancement. It's not a question we can realistically answer. Right, you know, it's it's one of these things that we can claw at and we can try to put into perspective, but we're not. So instead, what we do is we we create these these wild answers for for why not that's what you know? i like that's what i like about the fermi paradox is that it whenever i read about a new paper about it or something it always feels like it's a scientist just having a good time man. yeah like there's a guy <laughs> yeah. named there's a guy named steven webb um and he writes a book called um i think it's called where are they? i have it written down somewhere where are they uh 75 solutions to the fermi paradox and it's just him like Having a good time with spitballing. it. Spitballing. Yeah, you know? spitballing. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's so it's a lot of fun to read. It's 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 like uh I don't want to say low rent science fiction, but it's it's a fun science fiction of uh, that has some si- actual science behind it. Yeah. 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 Well, I think probably the the what do you the big enchilada in in the Fermi paradox, like one of the big solutions that you know a lot of people worked on is uh it's called the rare earth solution. Oh, right. the rare earth. Rare earth. This Dang. one bummed me out when I started reading into it. <laughs> it did. You actually, you told me that yeah. with a text. You were like, It oh, was man. starting to convince me that we're, we're alone. And I'm like, oh, that <laughs> is a bummer. It's, 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 it's scary to think about. It's scary to be alone in the universe. You know, I, we are going to talk about like the intersection between this and religion later on. And I want you to hold <laughs> that thought, uh, Mr. Athey. Uh, Anyway, the rare earth hypothesis argues that the evolution of biological complexity requires a host of fortuitous circumstances, such as a galactic habitable zone, a central star, uh, and planetary system having the requisite character, the circumstellar habitable zone, which again is that Goldilocks zone, a right-sized terrestrial planet, the advantage of a giant guardian like Jupiter and a large natural satellite like the moon, uh, conditions needed to ensure that the planet has a magnetosphere and plate tectonics, uh, the chemistry of the lithosphere, atmosphere, oceans, the role of evolutionary pumps, and uh, something and called a eukaryote cell, sexual reproduction, and the Cambrian explosion. I mean, you could just talk, you could write, there are books written about just our moon alone, the size of it compared to our earth, uh, the fact that it's tidally locked, the distance of it. I mean, just that makes us pretty rare, especially just, just in our solar system. Yeah, and the idea is that you have to have, you know, all these things, all these dice rolls have to work out for life to to develop. And they and, all got to be natty 20s. Just right. And they all got to be, yeah, you got to yeah. roll 20s all the way <laughs> yeah, across yeah. the board. Um, and that to me, and I think we can jump right into the talk about religion, because because that, to me, that the fact that we're rolling all these natural 20s in a row, like, I guess in the, in a, in a, a world on the scale of billions like yeah, we're I mean, eventually going to we have billions of stars inside billions of galaxies it was going to happen somewhere i i guess so but and, and only once and and only once i mean yeah. it, it seems like to me that all these things the 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 moon uh rotating perfectly around the earth at the same speed the earth rotates um you know these things to me speak of of creation of of purposeful well 
manipulation it, we don't know. in order to achieve a goal. And it's easy to say that after the fact. You know, we don't know that it happened. I mean, we know that we know that it only happened once, but it's possible it happened happened elsewhere. But life just didn't continue at a certain point. At a certain point, it it, it stopped for sure, whatever the initial organiza- organisms you know, may, hit a hit a, a hot pool. Yeah, there's a and, and boiled yeah, alive. Yeah, before or they a were comic able hit the to, planet, or you know, something. They, they encountered or some the circumstance that was too became, great for them to overcome. Or the star was well, un- unstable, or something. So that idea is within Fermi's paradox. Well, it's called the Great Filter, and rare Earth is basically just a series of filters. Like basically, the idea behind the Great Filter is that life is springing up all throughout the universe. But there is a there is a filter, there is a barrier that most life does not pass. Mm. And the whole idea of rare earth is that we are rare in that we have passed that. So here the life didn't fall into the hot pool. Here the moon is in in the right position and so forth. But see, for me, the problem I have with rare earth is I have I and you know I cannot remember the exact name of the bias when we did our big episode about bias, but I have never in my life heard of a better case of someone looking at something in hindsight and and confirming it. You know what it's I'm saying? Confirmation like, bias on its The yeah. moon is in the perfect spot because we are the life that developed with the moon. Right. Do you see what yeah. I'm saying? Like, of course, yeah. we are in balance and harmonious with our surroundings. Right. You don't you know get to I mean? look right. back and say, well, see, so the moon must have been placed there. Yeah. I mean, that's and a it, little hubristic. And it, it completely, like, it... it you're right. You need all these conditions for life like us. Is that, is that, that's all there can be is life like us. You know, I even, I'm sure that there are scientists who, will, you know, very clearly explain to me why it's, it's believed that, you know, you have to have liquid water for life. And I'm sure they have, they have just outstanding explanations, but all of those explanations were built in a world that, had life that lives off liquid water. <laughs> right. You know what right. I'm saying? Like they're a little biased. You know what I mean? Well, I can, I can imagine life forms that don't, that aren't tied to physical reality. I mean, right. we're talking about quantum, uh, you know, quantum experiments that are, that are blowing the boundaries of what we know about physics right now. Like yeah. why aren't there, you know, why aren't there life forms that do the same thing? You know, it's yeah. like you said, the, the boundaries that we perceive to exist for life, we perceive to exist because we are life that exists within those boundaries. <laughs> yeah, no, that absolutely. doesn't mean that life doesn't exist outside of those boundaries. And hell, I could see uh, the the entire universe as we know it being cells in a larger sentient organism. Right. You know right. that we are traversing well, inside of. Like, when I was reading about rare earth, I, I no joke, I saw something uh, where they said, you know, well, you know, life couldn't exist on a gas giant like Jupiter, and I was like. Dude, a, a sentient cloud could totally exist. Sentient on, you know, fart clouds on yeah, Jupiter. Dude. I mean, yeah. that could, that could, could just totally be fart have. clouds. <laughs> I mean, think about what we're learning about Malika and like how much we have left to learn about, you know, like you say, like quantum science and, and impulses traveling and, and the, you know, communication of information through light and stuff. Um, we, we have no idea to sit there and say, I know what the rules are. And 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 to look out at the galaxy, no less, and say, I know what the rules are. <laughs> yeah, the, no. the rules here are the same. <laughs> yeah, just ev- everywhere. everywhere. Well, and the reason we're looking in exact places that are like Earth is because we do know for a fact that it, that is how life, that's the only confirmation of how life is just, yes, we haven't discovered, we're not looking for an ascension sound wave or a sentient uh, beam of light because uh, that effort would be largely wasted. Yeah, I it would think. be, I mean, it would be, yeah. we know that life can exist under these conditions. So that's where we're looking. Cause the, I mean, the place is, this place is huge. So yeah, it, it does make massive. the most sense to look for what we've, we know has happened. You know right. what I'm saying? We know that life developed around liquid water. So look for liquid water. Yeah. I'm fine with that. It's this next, it's this rare earth step. Yeah. That gets me. Yeah. That bugs fair me and fair I, enough. You know, that's fair enough. And, uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the filter theory though. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's super interesting to me um, that maybe there is some sort of uh, even physical boundary mm-hmm. somewhere that prevents, like, say, a radiation belt um, that that is on a different wavelength than our satellites are looking for mm-hmm. um, that prevents radio waves from penetrating it, uh, uh-huh. or actually physically stops crafts from entering it. Yeah. Um, you know, there could very well be. Uh, a waterfall at the edge of our galaxy that that sucks everything off the edge 
So there are plenty of life forms outside of it. Let me get this straight. You're proposing, little... you're proposing flat galaxy now? Yeah, is, exactly. Flat galaxy. flat galaxy. Flat theory. <laughs> right, yeah. right. It, 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 we, could, we could live on flat galaxy where everything <laughs> falls off the edge of the turtle's back. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not outside of the realm of possibility. So, oh, no. You, you absolutely. You have a point. Um, in fact, one of the filters uh, that you know scientists or theorists have, have uh, put out there is that there is there is life in the universe and it's actually fairly common, but it's just the sheer distance between worlds is is insurmountable mm. or the resources that's required to move a giant ship. Right, we can't, you know, can't go fast or far enough because a lot of this is like predicated on the assumption that this advanced technology is going to figure out faster than light travel or something approaching faster than light travel or put together a generational ship or something of that ilk. Um, that's what, I don't know, to me, the, the whole, the filter theory is really interesting because you never know, uh, which side of it that we're on. Right. So it could be something like that, that we haven't reached yet, or it could be something that we've already passed. Like we discussed, perhaps it's the jump to multicellular life. But then on the other hand, what if it's social media? (laughs) I mean, what if civilizations chunk along and everything's fine they develop social media or something like it. They develop iPhones and society starts looking at porn nine right. hours out of every day and, right. and society well, just falls apart. I think I think In, one of the more common ones is the ability to destroy oneself. So like weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. uh, that can Artificial be intelligence. Uh, yeah. thing that you guys did an episode yeah, on artificial intelligence. I mean- yeah. Which will kill us all one day. Yeah. yeah. It's the idea that uh, every civilization, as they begin to head toward the stars- eventually develops AI for one reason or another. And that is what filters out anybody actually reaching the stars. Right. So as they develop AI kind of in concert with their space travel, AI takes over, becomes supremely intelligent and goes, wait, this whole life thing is a big mistake. Let's wipe it out. (laughs) I could, I could uh, see that. And that's what people worry about with the AI singularity. Yeah. Is that, uh, (laughs) (laughs) everyone should go back and take a listen to that episode because it is a great, uh, great episode. There's the answer. It's episode, that episode of the sense and theory podcast is the answer to the Fermi Fermi paradox. No, I just, I love, I love the idea that, um, like I said, that we don't know, uh, you know, kind of in essence, like when is now, like at what point are we at, you know, which is another, another solution that's been proposed to Fermi's paradox is perhaps we're one of the first, perhaps we just don't realize where we're at in the timeline of the universe. And we're one of the first civilizations to develop. Mm. Now there, there is an idea out there, the mediocrity principle that says that, you know, more than likely we're not going to be at the emergent uh, point in the galaxy because you know all things being equal you know if you grab something out of a bag it's going to have the mediocre traits of everything in that bag yeah right? but then again you, you you roll a d20 and sometimes you hit that natural 20 sometimes you do so we yeah. could you know we could very well i think be the main the idea is one. the emergent stage of life in the galaxy is a very narrow window mm. compared to you know the the in full swing stage so you know it's more likely that we're in the in full swing stage. But like you said, man, you know, who knows? I mean, which I think is interesting because maybe that's how we should treat all of this. That like, we're the first. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? We, we better be on the, on guard for these filters as I mean, they come up. If I, I think if we are the first, I, that places a hell of a burden on the human shoulders to, to be the ones to, populate the galaxy that way when future civilizations go searching they'll have something to find god yeah. i hope we can figure out politics first. <laughs> <laughs> no but it does and it actually i think uh yeah i mean across the board i think regardless of what we think the answer is to the paradox i think that's how uh, the mind state that we need to be in that's what's going to push us out there and and maybe we're going to hit that filter and crash and burn but that's what's going to get us out there in the first place is is thinking that, you know, maybe we're the trendsetters. We, yeah, you know we I mean? are the only ones and that we need to, well, unfortunately, the way things are, uh, it'll be more like we need to conquer it first. <laughs> but, hey, well, if and, we and get out there first, maybe we'll develop a, like a 
a better society having more resources and things Maybe like that. Maybe we end up as the filter, you know, as we go <laughs> trampling across Mars or like well, destroying <laughs> colonies <Jesus>. of <laughs> early life forms. You know, one of my we terraform. We are the mine minerals. One of my favorite Come to find out we weren't so intelligent to begin <laughs> with. One of my favorite solutions that I read while preparing for this episode is something called the Dark Forest uh solution to Fermi's paradox. Oh. And basically uh, it's named after a book that was written that was kind of about this idea. But basically, it's the idea that, no, there are all sorts of civilizations out there in the galaxy, but there's a predator out there. There's something There's something evil, and it, it collapses civilizations, and broadcasting is how you attract it to yourself. <laughs> oh, shit. So, so basically, so in this book, like, basically what happens is the aliens show up, and they're like, guys you got to shut up. Like you're drawing attention to us. Like you stop gotta- sending these radio broadcasts. Yeah. What did you do? You sent a Tesla out into space. What are you doing, man? You are gonna- Galactus is going to find us. He's going to come eat our planet. Shut up. So it becomes interesting when you think about if we are the first, perhaps we eventually will become the monster in the dark forest. You know, oh, God I mean, will. Oh, I like the dark. Damn. Forest I'd read that idea. book because, because if you think about it, like, predatory behavior and predation uh these are things that that spawn life these are the things the very things that uh that encourage life to change and adapt and develop and become intelligent if 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 people had no obstacles to overcome for example would we have picked up uh, 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 sticks and sharpened them into spears if there were no lions right. you know trying to come and eat us and and would we have then uh, said, oh, we've got a sharp stick now. Let's make a tool and, you know, and start building. So it, it's funny that the very thing, you know, predation and, and predatory behavior, the very thing that creates and builds life could also be the very thing that destroys and stops yeah, life. No. <laughs> no, and it's actually, it's interesting you say that because literally last week, uh, scientists did a study where they found that algae uh, that was uh, in a singer, single has cellular in, yep. form um, actually made the jump to multicellular uh, from the mere presence of a predator. Wow. Uh, you know, the controls did not mutate into multicellular life while the, the experimental one, they absolutely did. So, uh, well, it, three, th- uh, two out of five of them did. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Not all of, of them. It was like two out of five. But I think it's better than none. Yeah, well, oh, well, yeah, I, for sure. But, I mean, <laughs> considering they've been multicellular or single-celled life for yeah, however long. Yeah, yeah. However long, and then they just suddenly sprung into multicellular life when you added uh, a predator. Yeah, that's which still way a big to deal. go for that sign. That that I mean, that's really cool to observe that. Yeah, like last week. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what they were saying. Like that kind of unlocks. Uh, you know, hopefully, will lead to unlocking some of the mysteries of how we sprung to be built. You know, however long ago. So. Um, no, I think I think that's great. I, I think to your point about the the turtles back in the radiation barrier, though, I think that touches on something else, and you know that runs hand in hand with the dark woods. We don't even know if the way that we're sending signals out is the correct way to send signals out. <laughs> well, you it's know? kind of funny because because NASA we're still using fairly primitive. For, for humans, fairly primitive technology to explore space. Right. We've still got radio telescopes, and, and radio is fairly fairly primitive, you'd like to yeah. think. Well, also, yeah. like, we've only just developed radio technology in the last 100 years. No, about 100, 80 years, actually. Yeah, last yeah. 100 years, and that's only had that amount of time to start going out into the universe. It's only right. 80. We're in the, we're in the 20s now. Radio was in the twenties, right? Uh, Got to no, no, be a hundred years. No, by but now. radio telescopes. Uh, oh, telescopes! Was, okay. n- I think it was nineteen thirty-five. Yeah. Okay. So going, yeah. it's kind of this is kind of, and this kind of goes back to your when is now thing. What you were saying? Uh, what if we're all at a, you know, there's a chance that we're all about at the same level right now. Uh, Referring to the extra, all all the the extraterrestrial life are at the same level as us. If this is the point where life is emerging, perhaps no civilization has surpassed this. Yeah, enough to make a difference. So only their radio waves have made it how very not very far out into their solar system as well. So that's why we wouldn't pick it up as well. And and we have we've received you know I mentioned at the beginning of the show we have we have recently received 
some some repeating radio broadcasts that are mm-hmm. that are always this this thing where scientists go, oh oh look, we've got a pattern here, yeah. and then you know now we are we have received patterns that have repeated, which is really cool, and it and it could be natural phenomenon. Sure, yeah, patterns repeat in nature all the time. Well, that's originally what happened with pulsars. At first, we thought pulsars were messages, and then come to find out, but. But yeah, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it ain't, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know. It's hopeful is all. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's something to look at. It's something to look forward that's kinda to. That's kind of what, that's kind of why I follow these things is because, like I said, the rare earth thing was starting to bum me out. And I, <laughs> I follow these things because once something crazy like that crops up, I, I get a little hope. I'm like, oh, we maybe they are out there. What's so wrong with being alone in the galaxy? <sighs> you know, What's I don't know. What's so depressing I about think that? It, I think it actually, for me, it has a lot to do... I don't know. It's similar, I would say, to a lot of religious people, I think, that they want there to be more. I think, and that's why I think a lot of religious people are religious. They just want there to be more. And for me, it's it's a bit of hope that there is more than just us. Confirmed, science is the new religion. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's, to me, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm actually, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today. Was you have always you know been a pretty firm atheist? Yes. Yes. Not, okay. For and and that's what yes. that's what I see. That's what I see you treating this as. Now I too um, want there to be life out there. Like I, the idea that we're alone, it bugs me. It digs at me. I see, but I, I also I also um, kind of feel like uh, you know again I'm not I, I'm not really sure. You know it's it's a little agnostic and stuff. I don't necessarily like believe in God. Like, you know, Jerry Falwell would tell you about or whatever. But I do think that there is something. So I'm one of those people, but you're not one of those people, but you are here, which is interesting to me, I thought. Well, it has, I don't have to take a leap of faith. I don't know. Faith for me is, uh, isn't, isn't, best. isn't um, Drake's equation in a way a leap of faith though? I mean, if you're, if you're looking at, at equations sure, but at least you can, numbers. Sure, like, but at least those numbers are, can be, uh, they're can have, based on they're based on something that I can observe. Mm, it's not yeah. just the, the spaghetti, the flying spaghetti man. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. See, for me, I I don't have a problem with being alone in this universe. I mean, the way I see it is is our lives in a hundred year scale are so inconsequential. Like we're already alone, even if there's millions of things out there. Like you're you're alone. You were born to die. We're a blink of an eye, and you know, a speck of dust, a mote of dust in the cosmos. Like. Who cares? That's well, but, all I'm saying. But I think, but you also firmly believe in in another. You know, I, I, it's hard. You know, I don't want to like nail you down on your beliefs or whatever. But going back to even your Vegas story, you believe in another sort of presence that could or could not have meaning for life. Absolutely, correct? yeah, I do. Okay, I, so, I believe I believe in a in a in a godish like power and i've got evidence for that in my own personal life yeah and that's fine so i think but i think that gives you the comfort to be okay with us being alone like in the vacuum of space you know what i mean touche like whereas with him that is his because i mean i think and and again i'm not trying to if if i'm wrong stop me correct me do whatever you got to do but um i think that the, the if there is other alien civilizations out there that means there's more to this mm. because what's the alternative? The alternative is that we're just these cruddy little things that happen to spring into existence <laughs> on this rock. You that know makes, what I mean? To Pretty me, that likely. makes, hold on to me. That makes more sense than we're just these little shits that just happen to crawl out of the, the, the mud. than than having an entire universe, billions of billions of, of planets and stars and galaxies and God just said, uh, uh, life on that one. <laughs> really? Like, uh, all right. Well, you know, that, that is actually one, another solution, uh, to the paradox is the so-called simulation solution. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that, uh, this, you know, as we experience that life is a simulation and whoever wrote the simulation whether you, whether you want to call that God or whether you want to call it our alien masters who are running the Matrix. Our benevolent programmer um, overlords. <laughs> yeah. Purposefully put us in this universe alone to see what those effects are. We mm-hmm. are test case 
X12, and they're seeing what happens if a civilization develops in a universe by itself. Right. Imagine a single cell in a Petri dish, if you will, um, trying to explore and look out around it, and nothing has grown in the Petri dish yet, and going, you know, we're alone. It's very possible yeah. that this entire galaxy is just atoms in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it is interesting that um, atoms resemble... I mean, the models, galaxies, yes, are, and and uh, solar systems and things. The like models that. that we use to describe atoms yeah. are very similar to to you know planetary objects orbiting. Yep, that's kind of wild. Yeah, I've always thought that was. Cool I think way. I think there's something else. Like as we as we go down that road and we start to see like the possibilities of simulations and the possibilities of like virtual reality and stuff. It it does it does raise an interesting question that has not been a long standing solution to Fermi, but it's kind of cropped up recently. And that is that the civilizations are out there, right? But they're all on the on their VR tubes. They're all I, in their headsets. Yeah. They're happy. They're you know so, so it's not I, well, it's I, it's a little different from the filter, like 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 VR or being on their iPhones didn't destroy them. No, it's it's contentment. It's the idea that that as a society grows, um, the eventual goal, and I think the goal for for life is is to create comfort and to be, uh, you know, to seek pleasure, if you will, um, to 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 seek out positive feedback loops, right? Mm-hmm. So a sufficiently advanced civilization may very well put people into closed positive feedback loops, such as a VR simulation where they yeah. could. Uh, where they could do whatever they want, you know, whatever it is for them that that provides pleasure, and and thus would never have any need to send radio waves to the stars. Well, yeah, because when you're connected to every being on a planet, okay, our planet has billions of beings. It's like you can find something new every day. You or don't need to reach for out yourself. Right. Yeah, you don't need to reach out to another species because you could meet a new individual every single day that taught you something new every single day. You wouldn't have that need to explore off our planet because you could explore actual people. I think that makes a lot more sense. And I, and I, and I think that, that whether we go there wholly, mm-hmm. I think our society, especially with, with, with socialism, you know, coming into popularity in America and you know, really across the world, this idea that uh, we ought to provide for everyone. Um, I don't think we're far off from a point where a large portion of our population would be perfectly content with a bag of weed, a six pack of beer, and a VR headset <laughs> for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting though. I was just sitting here thinking to myself, it, it, it's interesting, me, and I think that almost sums up the difference between you and I in a nutshell. Earlier, we said that adversity absolutely drives life and cr- causes it to evolve. <laughs> and yet you said you think it is the destiny of life well, to seek out creature comforts and positive feedback. Well, I don't think, see, I don't think that's a, I, I don't think those are in opposition to each other. I think that, that seeking out uh, progress over adversity is that need to come to a point of comfort, right? So, so once the adversity has been surmounted, then here we are to enjoy that state of comfort until the next obstacle comes to yeah. our comfort. You I, know what I'm saying? I understand yeah. this particular solution. This one isn't one of my favorites. I feel like, I mean, because we play video games, you know, and we do other things like uh, tabletop RPGs and things like that. And drink beer. And drink beer, yep. <laughs> um, but uh, it while I enjoy my video games, I still go out of my way to read about things like Fermi's paradox. That's I, just I don't think your video be, game's not good enough. That's that's <laughs> that's possible. I've experienced VR and it's shit right now. So but once it, it gets like solid, I don't know if I'll ever get out of that chair. You right, wait, 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 wait. Stop the presses. VR is not shit right Dude, now. Dude, it's not have good. you played Robo Recall? <laughs> I, I no, I don't think okay, I have. Robo I Recall is the coolest game ever. <laughs> you are literally in the Matrix. You can rip robots' heads off and throw them at other robots. And, you can grab bullets out of the air and throw them back at people. It and, is phenomenal. And it's phenomenal, but you're sitting here as a hobby making a podcast instead of doing that. <laughs> Fair because enough. You, <laughs> because you don't feel enough fulfillment, right. possibly. I'm not saying I can't tell you no, how it you is feel. Not, you know, but you poss- it's, you're doing this instead of doing that because while it's fun, it can't possibly give you the fulfillment that you need. Right. Yeah, I mean, and I don't no, think I don't, VR I don't will ever think be good you, enough. You can't even walk that. around in Robo. Coffee. No, you can. So, so at around. least from that standpoint, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't quite got there yet. But it's not 
you also can't eat cookies. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can't eat. Cookies. I really like cookies, but there could be a day where until you can, you can plug that VR. set into your brain and it tells your brain what to taste. I, I'm saying I can, I can, I can see a point where that. Happens oh, I could absolutely for, for see humanity. That I, I can see yeah. it. I think uh, so. If we are, you know, in a simulation, then that uh, that kind of makes you think that there's somebody watching, right? Oh, there's and that, gotta be, yeah. Yeah, and that well that oh, kind of yeah. leads into a another solution to Fermi's paradox, which is the zoo theory, right? And the idea is that uh we quite simply are not advanced enough. Our you cannot eat cookies in our VR. Therefore, our civilization has not reached the point where, where anybody cookies. any other alien civilization wants to have anything to do with us. Mm. So basically they just kind of drive by every now and then and take a look at us. And it's like we're the tigers at the zoo, right? Right. right. We're and maybe maybe we're even shunned, <laughs> yeah. from, you know, from the colonies. They're like, ah, those guys really they're they're not that cool. Yeah. Don't even. And actually, well, they're still a, warring with each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It has a lot of overlap with uh, you know. There's an idea in Star Trek of like the Prime Directive, and you know they have their their dividing line is warp technology, and you don't mess with pre warp civilizations until they hit warp. That's the point at which you know. Yeah, and the prime yes, the prime directive is the end all be all. And oh, here that's, we go, nerd alert! I'm excited. Well, here's the thing: if we're talking about the prime directive, and it's in like the way it's portrayed in Star Trek, and it could be that's the way. Like maybe there's already a galactic community of planets in in different species out there, and they are all have all taken the same oath not to mess with uh, pre warp civilizations. Um, you know that could be. That could be a reason for the par- uh, for uh, a solution for the paradox. However, I mean, getting every single if we're if we're agreeing to there being thousands of species, getting every single species to agree to the to agree to be in their federation and agree to follow the paradox the um sorry the uh, prime the directive, directive yeah, yeah. Uh, seems. Altruistic. It so seems you're, like you're not gonna you're not gonna get the Borg to sign on. For yeah, example. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's or, bound or the to be the Borg you know, out there. There's gonna be gonna... one dickhead species out there that's like well, no, no. There's got to be right. We're gonna exploit the shit. We're gonna they got yeah. diamonds down there. Have yeah. you seen diamonds? <laughs> diamonds are pretty great. Yeah, exactly. So that, plus that they've one... got VR porn. Well, I... <laughs> have you ever done yeah. VR porn? Like, well, I love Star Trek. I I think that one's a little bit uh, Pollyanna, uh, pie, like, pie yeah. in the sky a bit. I could uh, talking about the zoo though. I could definitely see now. It doesn't explain the rest of the empty galaxy, um, but I could definitely see the Earth as being an aquarium of sorts. You know, yeah, and sure. we're just well, we're just on display to look at and laugh at. Again, and, going back to our methods though, I think when you say it doesn't explain the rest of the galaxy, like the the empty galaxy, um, you know, they recently uh, just within the last couple weeks, I think, realized that Earth's atmosphere actually extends out past the moon. And yeah, the atmosphere of the earth actually extends all the way out past the moon. So technically we have never had a manned mission leave the earth's atmosphere, (laughs) but, but what do they mean by that? So there's just, there's an X, there's a layer of gas that is, that is tied to uh, the earth's gravitational pull. Right. But it goes, but let me tell you why it's important. It's not just a trivial matter. They have to start recalibrating some of our telescopes because they weren't allowing for that interference. Interesting. So, mm. so you know, we say it doesn't account for the... We don't know if the universe is empty just based on us looking because we look like idiots, basically. <laughs> well, you know what right, I mean? and, yeah. and, and extend that out to a, to a massive scale. Say there's something we don't understand about the edge of our solar system, even. Right, right. Or the edge of, our, of, of the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. there is a physical, uh, you know, uh, gathering of, of gases that... that I don't know, create a reflection. And really right. all of these other planets we're seeing are just weird, distorted reflections of the one we exist in. And they yeah. don't really, they're yeah. not really there. They they just found out uh, 10 years ago, I think, or within the last 10 years, I'll put it to you like this, that the Milky Way galaxy is twice as big as they thought it was. Huh. You want to talk about changing Drake's equation, <laughs> man. Now does that, I mean, you know, does that mean that there's twice as many stars or just the distance is twice? You know, as I'm great? not sure it is. It is the distance. It is twice as wide. We'll oh, say, as they originally thought. 
Uh, they originally thought it well, was Well, that's going to screw up your GPS calculations, <laughs> yeah. man, on that they Voyager probe. <laughs> originally thought it was a 100,000 light years across. Come to find out, it's probably 200,000. Whoops, should have stopped for that fill-up uh, over at Omicron 9. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. So, but I, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're looking for needles and haystacks uh, by, what, what's the, shoot, uh, what's the, the Star Trek thing with the teleporter? You know what I'm saying? Trying to hit a bullet. While it's going through the, you know what I'm no, talking I don't, about. You mean, are you talking about the 2009 movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know. Like, I can't He's remember not the that analogy big of he makes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I do love Star Trek. Yeah, it's I will reiterate. It, it's I don't know. I couldn't tell you like the year that Cochran created the faster than light drive. Cochran. Yeah, Cochran. He was the guy that invited oh, you. The- nerd. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but anyway, it's something about like you know trying to do this transportation thing. He says. It's like uh, being on a train trying to hit a bullet that's, you know, fired from another train. Like, it's just... Right. And, and that's basically what we're doing with these radio signals and these telescopes. We're, we're playing around with these toys that we got, and every day we're finding out they suck or that this was in the way, you know? So we, so we really don't know. And I think what happens is, is that you end up falling back on this one assumption, and I think it kind of drives how you look at Fermi's paradigm. And that is, all things being equal will life attempt to spawn? Like, will life try to come into being? And, you know, I, I don't want to personify it. I don't want to make life take on the traits that we have. But you, you know what I'm getting at. If, if all these other planets, if nothing else, if nothing else gets changed, life will attempt to spawn and it's just a filter that stops it from progressing, then you almost have to believe that there is other life, you know, throughout the galaxy, mm. throughout the universe. But if you think that that us, again, us being here was just a lightning bolt, was just all of the right things happening, and that life doesn't generally spawn, it's just a product of our unique combination, which I'm going to go ahead and tip you into how I feel about this, is incredibly hubristic, <laughs> then, then yeah, then you're going to be on the doubting side of the paradox. You know, you're going to, I think it really does govern how you walk into this. I guess that does make me uh, a bit hubristic then because I, I do think that life was a bit of like a lightning bolt here. Like it just bam happened. I, I think that if light, if um, life has to happen, it would find many more ways to happen like all over the place and not just on earth. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it, the fact that it happens on earth, shows the the complex and, it, and crazy forms that life can take well and it happens all over on earth so so you leave a piece of bread out and it grows mold uh you try to form a closed system and organisms in infest and and they grow um the shit we find in caves at the bottom of the ocean exactly just, and, and but all done, of that we've, is we've done recent experiments with uh with silicon right it's long been theorized in science fiction that there could be silicon-based life because silicon is so similar to carbon we have that's what i'm saying all of that even merged, the mold and the fish and the uh, tiny it's still all carbon based yes it well it is all the life that we found is carbon based but we have created um organic silicon based um compounds so and we, we have forced fused, that to happen we have but if we can force it to happen can't the universe force it? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it naturally happen in the universe? I mean, you would think. In, and in I, a, and in if billions, life, if in, life has to happen, then yeah, it probably would have come out with silicone. But I think that it doesn't have to. Is what to answer theory's question. So, so real quick, like, what if it doesn't have? If it doesn't have to, does that make us special? Was there something special? Was it just a series of dice rolls? Um, you know. At that point, is it is it a thousand natural twenties in a row? Is that what happened? We flipped. We flipped a coin and boom, here we are at the the thousandth flip, and we're still flipping heads. I possibly, and I think that is the <laughs> basis of the paradox that uh, we're talking about. Mm, no, but I mean, uh, okay. Well, I hate your answer. Um, <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I mean, it's cool. No, but I, I think I again, like for me, um, not not even for a sense of purpose and, and meaning and all that stuff. It's really, I hate to say this, it's really starting to look, fellas, like I'm not going to be alive when we start traveling between stars. Mm -mm. So I'm pretty disappointed about that. But at the same time, when, you know, man does eventually, whether it's on generational ships or whether we figure out FTL or, you know, whatever we do, I want things to be out there for the sense of adventure of it all. I want to see what a gas cloud 
um, thinks of the the Cowboys and the Redskins. Smells you know like farts, I'll of, tell you the that. The <laughs> and, and I really hate to break it to you, but I don't think society is going to break past the iPhone porn filter. Oh, man. I really think that's our stumbling block. We're done for. It's it's certainly a possibility, but I, you know, I am I'm going to hope that we find some way to aspire against it. Re, you know, doing this episode and actually even before it, I've been on a space kick kind of because I've always had like a fascination with astronauts and stuff. And for whatever reason, last couple weeks, I've been watching a lot of videos about like the the trip to the moon. And oh, you mean Stanley Kubrick's Stanley Kubrick's film, right? That's a that's a whole nother episode. That's probably a bonus episode. <laughs> what we're gonna have to do. But <laughs> assuming that Mr. Kubrick wasn't involved, um, the story of us traveling to the moon is is just amazing. It and, is, and and so wild, especially like when you when you think about uh, Armstrong and Aldrin, like as they're coming down to the surface of the moon, and they had this like alarm thing that went off, and and they they had to check back with Mission Control, like what's this alarm mean? We're trying to land this damn ship. Hell, you if know, you just think about the extra atmosphere that we didn't even account for. <laughs> yeah, there you go, <laughs> throwing them off. But they're coming down, and they're trying to figure all that stuff out. And as they and and then as they land, Aldrin said they both just like just shut up, and it took them like three minutes before they even said anything to Mission Control because they were just like, "Oh my God, look at this! We're yeah. on we're on another body." You know Can what you I mean? Imagine. And then you know I look at all the effort that it took to get us there, and then the moon ain't shit. It's like it's a quarter million miles <laughs> it's, away. It's right there. You know what I mean? I mean it's right there. I it's, see it's it. not even outside our atmosphere, man. You know so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. I hope we, like I said, I hope we do find something out there. And, uh, I just wanted to mention to your listeners there, um, if you guys enjoyed or have even a passing interest in anything we've talked about, there's a guy named, uh, Stephen Webb. Uh, he's got a book called Where Is Everybody? 75 Solutions to the Fermi Paradox. You can find it on Amazon. I just really enjoyed uh, this guy's work, and he's also on a podcast called the just uh, one episode called the Eighty Thousand Hours Podcast with guest Stephen Webb, and that's where I got a lot of my information from. Uh, it was really cool. He he does a way better job of than me of explaining uh, the paradox and the solutions. So, guys, you wasted your time listening to an hour of the Sense and Theory podcast. <laughs> yeah. You could have just gone and listened to this guy. Thanks, Pedro. Yeah, Pedro just, said, if you would like to hear experts talk about all the things that we've just <laughs> talked about, please go check out Stephen Webb. If they wanted experts, they wouldn't be listening to the Sense and Theory podcast. And man. that's why we love you guys. And we also love our new patrons. Huh? That's right. How so, about that uh, segue, huh? <laughs> so, Jill, thank you. Thank you very much for your support. I understand that... Uh, you didn't want to go $5 because you hate Beanzo, quote, those are your words. Um, but thank you nonetheless. We appreciate the money. It's going to help us uh, pay hosting and buy new mics and get some new equipment. Uh, thank you also to Seth uh, for being a patron. We really appreciate the money. Your money is going to go to beer for me and cigarettes for theory. There we go. We also want to give a big thank you to Beth who also joined the $5 Beanzo buddy tier, but who specifically said that she did not want Beanzo to use her name to promote his nefarious agenda. So, Beth, I, I, I just don't know how to tell you how much I respect you, and uh, I think you're wonderful for uh, donating to the show and for you know telling Beanzo where he can uh, shove your $5. So there you go. <laughs> now... Comes the time for Beanzo, our fact checker extraordinaire who's been listening to the show this entire time and picking on all our picking up on all our inaccuracies. There's probably that stutter right you. there. Yeah. <laughs> Beanzo, Beanzo, what, what you, do you got? got? Oh, okay, Theory. You feel dizzy, buddy? Because that sure sounds like a bunch of spin to me. Even if I were to believe that these alleged listeners, Beth and Jill, had expressed these alleged negative opinions of yours truly, then I'd simply have to believe that, just like you two, they are enemies of the truth. So feel free to live in your dream world. Totally real, not made up listeners. Hater money still spins. As for Seth, welcome to the esteemed society of Beanzo's buddies. I'm sure you're honored. This episode, whoo, what can I say about this episode? 
Hmm. Ah, uh, no. If you really want to hear an intelligent conversation about the Fermi paradox that doesn't consist of two washed-up rappers and their buddy who watches a lot of Star Trek, check out Dr. Anders Sandberg, who talks about Stephen Webb's book on episode 29 of the 80,000 Hours podcast. It's refreshingly insightful, and they aren't the type of folks to screw up a simple plug. Way to stay on brand, Pedro. Fellas, back to you. Well, Beans, I never said I was a research scientist. So. No, man, no, nobody expects you to. It was a lighthearted episode. Don't, don't Bro, let him get. He to you. knows Jill personally. No, I know he knows Jill. That's what he is. He is a ridiculous human being, ah! and I'm, I'm just tired of his shit. Oh, uh, anyway, man, uh, what a wonderful episode! I had a great good. time, Pedro. It was great you coming by. Uh, hold on, I uh, wait, wait, wait. I mm. get to, uh, I get to do the thing, right? There's not a thing. What, what thing? The thing you guess do the thing that. No, in theory, you I, know what I'm talking about. No, don't don't do this. No, no. you come on, man. I get to I get to do the Swift thing. No, man. Oh, Taylor Swift. Are you serious? I don't get to do the Taylor Swift. I'm gonna be the first guest. Hey, y'all. This Taylor is Beans Up, beloved no, star of the critically acclaimed show, The Bean no, Pod. I want to thank all of you for no, taking a moment to check out my side project, The Sense of Theory Podcast. Remember, if you need an extra dose of truth and integrity between shows, you can find all the links to contact my social media team at senseandtheorypodcast.com. You can also join the movement sweeping the nation by donating five bucks a month and becoming an official Beanzo buddy at patreon.com slash senseandtheory. And finally, don't forget that my segments normally start somewhere between 55 minutes or an hour in. You can always just skip ahead to the best part. This is your gracious host, Beanzo, signing off.